Hi, my name is Brian, and I'm the lead pastor at Grand Valley Church. We hope that this message helps you explore faith and connect with Jesus. Today we are on part three of our series called Act Justly, and we've been exploring justice and injustice together. And one of the things we've been talking about is that justice is an action. It's something that we live out, something that we do in how we live our lives. And for the first two weeks, we've been focusing on how do we live out justice on first a personal level, and then last week we talked about it on a community level, our systems of justice. How do we provide justice to others? Because one of the things that we've been talking about this is that everyone deserves justice. Justice is not something that has to be earned or achieved. Everyone deserves justice as a basic human right to be treated with dignity, to be treated with honor and respect, to be treated well, to be treated rightly in ways that are good and moral, that is something that everyone deserves, regardless of their beliefs, regardless of their skin color, regardless of their economic status or what country they live in. Every human being deserves justice and dignity and honor in how they're treated. And so that's what we've been talking about this, is how faith intersects with justice And today we're going to be shifting gears a bit and we're going to be exploring injustice. We're going to be looking at an example from scripture of when justice was not provided. Because one of the things that's true about justice and injustice is that any time there is a power imbalance between people or groups of people, it creates an environment where injustice can be inflicted. Power is often used to create injustice for one person or group to benefit from that injustice. And so today we're going to look at a story from the Gospel of John. The Gospels are the accounts of Jesus' life, and the Gospel of John was the last of the four to be written. And it was written by one of Jesus' disciples who traveled with Jesus and saw what he did firsthand. And then later on in his life, he wrote it down so that the church and followers of Jesus would have this to know more about who Jesus is. And so We're going to pick up this story in John 5. And as we go through, I want to encourage you to kind of look for some of these themes of justice and injustice as we go through this passage of Scripture together. And so in John 5, verse 1, it says, Afterward, Jesus returned to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish holy days. Inside the city, near the Sheep Gate, was the pool of Bethesda, with five covered porches. Crowds of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed, lay on the porches. And so Jesus has come into Jerusalem, and he takes this detour to this place called the Pool of Bethesda. And these people are waiting by this pool because they believe that this water has some form of healing powers. And so they're there hoping that they can be healed of what is making them sick. And so we pick it up, and it continues. It says, One of the men lying there had been sick for 38 years. When Jesus saw him and knew he had been ill for a long time, he asked them, would you like to get well? I can't, sir, the sick man said, for I have no one to put me in the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone else always gets there ahead of me. Now Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? And the man doesn't answer yes or no. He just says, I can't. I can't get into the pool of water when the water bubbles up. It's not that he doesn't want to, but he physically can't get to the water. Now, what is so important about the water in this moment? What is this place, this pool of Bethesda? Now, one of the things we know about the pool of Bethesda 
is it's actually not part of the Jewish faith at all. In fact, the pool of Bethesda was a shrine to the Greek demigod Asclepius, where only the first person who entered into the water when the water moved was believed to be healed. This is a piece of Greek mythology and Greek religion that has been transplanted into Jerusalem. And so people desperate for healing, desperate to be healed of their afflictions, where it says they were sick, they were lame, they were paralyzed. We, the scholars believe that this man that Jesus is talking to falls into that paralyzed category. He can't get up and move on his own. Someone else would have had enough mercy to bring him to this place. But in this area, in the eastern portion of the Mediterranean basin, something we have to know is that earthquakes are quite common. In fact, there's many earthquakes recorded, and often they're so small on the Richter scale that people wouldn't have felt them as they happen. But today, with modern scientific equipment, we can measure those earthquakes that happen. But something that will move when an earthquake happens is a pool of calm water. And so what the scholars and what the historians believe is that any time there was a small earthquake in the area, whoever was nearest to this pool that had an affliction that they wanted to be healed from would rush into the water and they believed that they would be healed by this Greek demigod. But the problem with this system and even with this belief is that whoever is first is the only person that receives healing. Whoever can push others out of the way and get their toe in the water first is who gets healed according to this belief. And it doesn't matter how major or how minor their affliction is, it's first come, first serve. Whoever can push someone out of the way, whoever can get into the water first. And so this paralyzed man has been there for 38 years. He's been sick. He's been seeking healing. He wants to get in the water, but he has no physical ability to get there. And so when Jesus asks him, do you want to get well? The paralyzed man is only thinking about the pool of water. And maybe for a moment, he has a glimmer of hope. Well, maybe this person I'm talking to will take him and put him in the water if the water suddenly is moved and they see bubbles rise up in it, which was the sign that likely there was a small, mild earthquake in the region. But this man is holding on to what little hope he has. But Jesus has a different plan. And so instead, Jesus tells him, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. And it says this, instantly the man was healed. He rolled up his sleeping mat and began walking. This man that's been waiting 38 years, 38 years of being paralyzed, gets up and walks. And not only that, he picks up his sleeping mat. Now, there's something interesting about this to me, is at the beginning of this passage, it says there was many sick people that were there waiting by this pool of Bethesda. But Jesus singled out this one man. And I believe that Jesus intentionally heals this man because he is the man that is least able or one of the least able to get into the water of the pool of Bethesda. The pool of Bethesda was a first come, first serve. Whoever's the most able is who gets the healing. But Jesus intentionally picks the person who is least able, the person who is the most separated from this. And we might look at this passage of scripture and say, well, this is just a healing miracle. This is Jesus demonstrating his authority and his compassion and his love. But I think it goes more than that. I think this is a passage about justice because 
Remember, justice is treating people with dignity and honor and respect that they deserve. And at this pool of Bethesda, it was not about dignity and honor and equality for who was there. It was just about who was most able. But instead, Jesus treats this man with dignity and honor in the healing. Because if you think about it, this man for 38 years has been unable to work, unable to care for himself. He's been unable to go and worship at the synagogue or the temple. And we know he's Jewish because a little later in the story, Jesus encounters him again at the temple. He's gone into the temple there. And so when Jesus heals him, when Jesus says, stand up, pick up your mat and walk, it is not just a physical healing. It is a complete restoration. He's now going to be able to work. He's going to now be able to take care of himself. He's going to be able to go and practice his faith that he hasn't been able to practice for 38 years. But that's not all that happens in the story because the very next verses tell us this. But this miracle happened on the Sabbath. So if you know anything about Jewish law, if you know anything about the Ten Commandments, you know that one of the Ten Commandments was that on the Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, from sundown to the next sunup, the people weren't allowed to work. And it was a sign of respect. It was a mark of the covenant. But on the Sabbath, Jesus told the man to pick up his mat and walk. So the Jewish leaders objected. They said to the man who was cured, you can't work on the Sabbath. The law doesn't allow you to carry that sleeping mat. See, the religious leaders don't care that the man has been healed. They don't care that this man just went 38 years not able to walk and suddenly was able to walk. They only care that he is doing work on the Sabbath. So why do you think Jesus does this? Why do you think Jesus tells the man to pick up his mat and walk knowing that it's the Sabbath? And I also think it's interesting that John waits until this moment in the story. He doesn't lead with saying this happened on the Sabbath. He tells the story of Jesus healing the man, and then he brings up, but it's the Sabbath. See, Jesus is sending a message with this healing. This is not just about that one man's healing. That is a a great part of it, something that was life-changing for him. But Jesus is trying to do something bigger. Jesus is sending a message and he knows that the sight of this man walking around carrying his sleeping mat, whether they recognize him as someone who is paralyzed or not, and likely they won't recognize him as the paralyzed man that they may have walked by, or maybe they never even went by that area, but he knows the Jewish leaders will be just attracted to noticing this man walking on the Sabbath carrying his mat. And so they challenge him, what are you doing carrying that. Don't you know it's the Sabbath? See, Jesus is doing something here. And so the man doesn't realize that it's Jesus that had healed him. He doesn't even recognize that until later on Jesus meets him at the temple and speaks to him briefly and warns him about something. And the man goes and tells the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus that healed me. And so John, a few verses later, tells us this. So the Jewish leaders began harassing Jesus for breaking the Sabbath rules. But Jesus replied to them, my father is always working and so am I. See, Jesus doesn't relent on healing on the Sabbath. In fact, Jesus regularly did things that broke the Sabbath and allowed his disciples to do things that broke the Sabbath. 
And this infuriated the Jewish leaders because they had created these extensive lists and rules about what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. Now, what I find really interesting about this is something that I want to quote a pastor and author named Bruxy Cavion, who wrote this in his book called The End of Religion, where he says, when questioned later, Jesus doesn't evade the accusations by saying he was just showing love and mercy in the healing. He specifically talks about always working to emphasize that this was about an intentional violation of the Sabbath law. Jesus is intentionally undermining the religious leaders of his day when he told that man, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And what Jesus is doing is he is subverting and undermining the authority of the Jewish leaders. In fact, Jesus instructed the man to intentionally violate the Sabbath law to make it clear that the Sabbath law had become a tool for denying justice to those without the means to follow the rules of the religious leaders. Now, let me unpack that a little. To take one day a week off of work, to take one day a week where you would do nothing that constituted anything on these massive lists of what was considered work that the the rabbis and the Jewish leaders had created meant that you had to work extra hard on other days of the week. And on the day leading up to the Sabbath, you had to prepare all your meals in advance. You had to work doubly so that you could take this day off. And what that meant is that for people without the means and the resources to do that, they weren't able to fully practice the Sabbath because the Sabbath had become this giant list of rules. And in another passage of Scripture, Jesus even challenges the the way that the Jewish leaders have altered the Sabbath into saying the Sabbath was meant to meet the needs of man, not for man to meet the needs of the Sabbath. And so Jesus is undermining the way that the Sabbath has become a tool for perpetuating injustice against people who didn't have the means and resources of the religious elite. And so they are, in a sense, perpetuating injustice with the rules that they have created around their faith. Now, they should be excited that this man was walking. They should be excited that this was mercy, that this was love, that this was compassion, that this man who was a beggar is now able to live a life that he wants to live. But instead of that, all they can focus on is this little red herring of the man carrying his mat, and all they can focus on is, you broke one of our rules. But Jesus, again, is undermining these rules that are perpetuating injustice. And so the rest of John 5 is a conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders at the time. And in fact, the rest of John 5 is a speech that Jesus gives to them that is a scathing rebuke of how the religious leaders have become blind to the work of the Father. Because what led to this, this healing that leads to this, is we have to recognize something, that every time Jesus heals someone in the Gospels, there is a deeper level of justice unfolding within that event. And in this case, in John 5, it takes this scathing rebuke of how the religious leaders have become blind to how God is working amongst them and around them. 
is how they have become blind to what God is doing. And so when we read a passage like this, and anytime we see any of the healing passages, the times when Jesus' love and compassion and mercy was shown to someone, we should take a moment and say, where's the justice in this? Where is the restoration? Where is this person, the wrongs that have been committed against them are being turned around? Because Jesus uses this healing not only to change this man's life, but to point out to the religious leaders how they have become blind to the work of the Father. And on top of that, they have become blind to how their interpretations of Scripture have become an oppressor to the people. That instead of being a group of leaders that are there to serve the people and act as ways to help people get to know God and get to know God's love and to live in a relationship with the Father, instead, they have become perpetrators of oppression. The very thing that they were supposed to prevent from happening has happened. And see, where this ties in to justice and injustice is we have to make sure that we are not becoming like these religious leaders. And in fact, the religious leaders of the day are the only group of people that Jesus ever criticizes in the Gospels because they're the ones who needed to know better. They're the ones who should have been leading with compassion and mercy. The ones who should have been calling out for justice. And like last week, we talked about how the prophets were sent in the Old Testament to remind the people to live justly, that that is truly what God wanted. But instead, injustice was prevalent. And it was prevalent then, and it's prevalent now. And so we have to look at passages like this and start asking ourselves a question. What does it take to prevent us from becoming blind to injustice? What does it take for us to recognize when injustice is happening? To recognize that we may have unintentionally become an oppressor in some way, shape, or form. And so, as we look at this, as we dive into passages like this and we ask ourselves, well, what do we do? I want to suggest that we start with this. I want to suggest with saying that if we want to prevent ourselves from being blind to injustice, that means if we want to see injustice and be able to act and respond to it with justice, we have to start with listening and believing when people speak of the injustices that they have suffered. This is something that Jesus did in this passage. When he went to the man who was laying there paralyzed, he asks him a question and gets the man to share a bit of his story. And the man shares that instead of, when he's asked the question, do you want to be healed? He responds with saying, I can't. Someone else always gets there first. And you would hope in a society where people cared for one another, you would hope that someone would look at this and say, hey, wait a second, the next time that pool bubbles up that they believed would give healing, we need to take this man who can't walk and put him in the water first. But that was not what was happening. Instead, it was every man for himself and whoever was the first one to get to the water got the healing from this Greek demigod that they believed in. So Jesus asked the man for a piece of his story. He made sure that he understood, he made sure that his disciples understood what was happening in the moment as they were watching Jesus interact with this man. 
Because we have to start with listening and believing when people speak about injustice if we're going to do anything about it. It's not enough to say, well, I'm just going to seek justice. We actually have to face injustice. We have to see when oppression is happening if we're going to have any part in relieving that oppression and moving towards justice. And what that means is that we have to be willing to step into difficult situations. If we want to be part of ending it, we have to be willing to step into messy and difficult situations for the sake of ending injustice. We have to be willing to listen to people's pain, to listen to people's heartbreak. As Paul says in Romans, to weep with those who weep. We have to be willing to grieve as we listen to these stories and accounts of when injustice happens in our world today. And when we look at our own history and we ask the question earlier in this series of saying, how have we unknowingly benefited from injustice? We have to look at our history and be willing to be uncomfortable with what we read when we realize that every one of us in some way, shape, or form, and some of us more than others have benefited from the injustices that were done to others. And so it's our responsibility, even if we had no hand in that and what happened historically, or even if we had no hand in the injustice that someone faced. As followers of Jesus, we are called to walk with them. We are called to listen, to understand, to grieve with them, to experience their pain with them. Because it's only when we understand someone's injustice that maybe we can be an advocate for their justice that we can be an advocate for our systems being changed, but it will take difficult and messy situations for that to happen. Jesus never shied away from talking with people who had experienced traumatic events. Jesus never shied away from talking with the people that were rejected by the rest of his society. You know, it's why he angered the religious leaders of the day, because he didn't abide fully by their, the rules and boundaries they set up around what was clean and unclean under their law. Jesus freely interacted with Gentiles. He dined with tax collectors and prostitutes, the scum of the world in his day. And Jesus did that so that he could reveal how important they were to God. He went to reveal the kingdom that he was creating. And there are so many stories and so many encounters that Jesus had with people that when we look at them through this lens of justice and injustice, Jesus always responds to their situation with justice, with love, with compassion, with dignity, with honor, respect. And that's the example that he gives to us. And those of us who have put our faith in Christ have to ask ourselves the question, am I living out that same example? Am I choosing in my interactions with people to observe and listen and understand their injustice? Because only then we can be part of seeking justice. And so that's our challenge. How will we be part of ending injustice? And will we be willing to wade into the messiness and the difficulty of that? And so next week, we're going to wrap up this series by 
taking some time to look at justice on almost the, the cosmic scale of the story of Scripture as a whole. And so I hope that you'll join us next Sunday as we wrap up this series. Thanks for listening to our podcast. If you know of someone that would benefit from hearing the message you just listened to, would you do us a favor and share this podcast with them? And while you're at it, please consider subscribing to be the first to hear when our podcast is updated. If you want to join in on Sundays, our services are streaming online at 11 a.m. Central. To find out more about our church, go to mygrandvalley.ca and you can also find us on Instagram and Facebook by searching for My Grand Valley. Thanks for listening. Thank you.